Coming up next on this episode of the Unlock You podcast. My husband is just staring at me like this blank look on his face. And my first instinct to look at the, the bed, right? The hospital bed. He's alive. You know, what, what's going on? He said they took David. I'm like, who took David? Where? How? Like they showed up at your mom's house two o'clock in the morning with the three police cars and they took David. And I'm like, she lied to me. She said they were going to see if he was, if she wasn't even going to wake him up. He's like, well, that's not what they did. So I called my mom. I'm like, what happened? Like they showed up here two o'clock in the morning with three cars, three police cars. They came into our house. They walked through our house. She opened the refrigerator door to see if we had food. She asked where David was. I showed her. She turned on the light. She asked me to take off the clothes to see if there were any signs of abuse. And she said there were no signs of abuse but we're going to take him. And my mom was like, no, you're not. And she said, well, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. <laughs> and the police officers are there. They don't say a word. Right? And my mom is like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And she's like, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. Hey friends, thanks so much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Welcome to Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. And today I am super excited to meet a new friend, Rachel Bruno. She is a mutual friend's friend. And I heard about her book and I thought we definitely need her on. Her book has just come out. It's called Fractured Hope. And she's going to tell the story that led up to that book and everything that changed in her life. So if you are someone who is listening and you have had seasons where everything has changed, and you need some hope and encouragement, I am super excited for you to hear Rachel's story. Thank you for being on our episode today. Hi, Dr. Shannon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. So what was the context before everything happened in your life? Who were you? Where did we start? Okay. So I was married for 10 years with my husband. I was an MBA graduate. We started our own business. And he's in cybersecurity and I was doing the business side. So, you know, I was thinking to myself, I did everything the right way, mm, right? Got married, can resonate. <laughs> finished school, financially stable. Now let's start a family. <laughs> so I had my first son, David, and, you know, everything went well. A little history about my medical history. I have seizures. I have epilepsy. And one of the main triggers to my seizures are sleep deprivation and interrupted sleep. So if you are having a newborn baby, you ain't sleeping. <laughs> yeah. So my doctors, you know, they suggested I get somebody to help me at least with the night shift so that I can get those solid eight hours of sleep at night. Yeah. And my first child, I had my mother-in-law from Brazil and my mom come and help me with the baby. You know, it was the first grandbaby. So everybody was very excited to help. <laughs> and then my second son came around and my mom and my mother-in-law said, I'm too old for this. <laughs> but they gave me money to hire a nanny. I'm Ooh. like, oh my gosh, I have the best mothers ever. <laughs> so I went out, you know, recruited found somebody that was willing to do the night shift, you know, from 10 PM until 6 AM was basically her shift. And she started watching my second son, Lucas, when he was about seven days old. Wow. And when he was seven weeks old, 
I woke up to him just screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, feeding, diaper change, something to that extent. He stopped crying. Then a few minutes go by and he starts crying again. Then he stops, starts again. You know, this goes on for about 20 minutes until I'm like, okay, you know, get up, figure what's going on. I go to the bedroom. She has the door partially open, has him swaddled inside the crib and was kind of like waddling him around and shushing him. And he was not settling down. That kid was screaming. She picked him up, put him in the burp position. And when he was up like this, he stopped screaming. So I'm like, okay, no, anything happened? And she showed me the empty bottle. And she's like, I just fed him. He's really gassy. But okay, fair enough. Babies get gassy. Okay. So at this point, it's about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. I was home alone. My husband was on a business trip. And my 20-month-old son, David, was sleeping across the hallway. And then I have the screaming seven-week-old. I'm like, last thing I want is for the 20-month-old to wake up. The seven-week-old is screaming. I'm by myself. <laughs> so I tell her, you know, I'm, I'm awake. He's obviously not settling down. So why don't you just go home and I will, I will take it from here. So she left and I unswaddled him. I undressed him, looked for any rashes, you know, anything leaking out of the ear, out of the nose, any signs that I could think of, you know, that babies, newborns exhibit when they're really uncomfortable. Couldn't see anything. I just gave him skin to skin, laid him on my chest, and he fell asleep on me. So I said, okay, you know, he just wanted your mommy. About three hours later, he wakes up seven o'clock, screaming again. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, feeding at four o'clock, seven o'clock, you're hungry. I go try to nurse him and he would not latch, you know, something that I had no problems with before. I thought it was weird, but I was jaded, you know, thinking colic, gassy, nursing strike. Nothing really phased me about it. Six hours later, nonstop crying. I could not put him down. He would not nurse. I'm like, what is wrong with this kid? You know, Dr. Google is telling me it could be all of the above, yeah. <laughs> all of the symptoms. So I call my mom and I'm like, I have to take him to the hospital. You know, I'm home alone. Can you please come and stay with David, my older son? So I call the pediatrician. Like, I can't see him till three o'clock this afternoon. I'm like, I have to see somebody. He's been crying since four o'clock this morning. Like, okay, then take him to the emergency room. Yeah. So my mom, my son, we all hop into the car. We go to the emergency room, lay him down. By this time, of course, kids love to sleep in the car. So he fell asleep. He wasn't crying. Nothing was happening anymore. I'm like, great. You know, I show up to the hospital, this over <laughs> concerned mother. Doctors are probably going to think I'm crazy. Tell me to go home. Mm -hmm. But I laid him down on the bed and the doctor asked me, you know, what happened? And he just walked away about 10 feet away, stood at the doorway. And it was just complete silence in that room. You know, there were a couple of nurses and the doctor, and he was just laser focused on my son. And like, this is weird. You know, and then about 30 seconds later, he walks towards the bed. He goes straight to my son's head, right behind his left ear. And he asked me, did you feel this? And no. So he makes me touch it. Like, you feel that bulge? I'm like, yeah. Like, that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? He's like, this could be spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood. We need to go do CT scan right now to see what's going on. And the moment he says that, about 10 people rush into that room mm -hmm. and they are lifting up the rails. They are putting probes on my son. They're putting things on his head. I mean, it was complete chaos for like, you know, two minutes. Yeah. 
and I'm just holding my son, like I have no idea what's going on. They start pushing me down to the CT room and then his right arm starts twitching as we're going down the hallway. And then the nurses really start running and I'm like, is this normal? The nurse like, no. And then it hit me, you know, left side of the brain, right arm twitching, he's having a seizure. Mm. And me being epileptic, I thought, oh my God, I passed it on to my son, right? It's genetic, it's hereditary. And I said a little prayer for my son. I said, Lord, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did for my whole life. Get to the CT room, they make me wait outside. The results come back. The doctor calls me into the back room where the monitors are. And he said, this is very serious. I'm like, okay, like the fluid is blood and the brain hates blood. It's a cranial fracture and intracerebral blood hemorrhage. We need to go do emergency surgery right now. And again, you know, handing me these papers, I'm signing liabilities. Like, are you against blood transfusions? Like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. Yeah. So they roll away my seven week old baby into the operating room for brain surgery. And I'm in shock. I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> right. I went from a gassy baby to now my son is in brain surgery. And I'm there with my mom and my 20 month old son, you know, bouncing off the walls. My husband is on an airplane, you know, on a business trip out of state. And we're just texting everybody. Like, I don't know what's going on. Everybody just pray. My son is in the operating room yeah. and he's in God's hands. So surgery lasted probably about four hours. You know, doctors came back, said, okay, Ms. Bruno, everything went clinically well. You know, we were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. And my first question, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And the doctor said, we really don't know, you know, due to his young age. And he started having a lot of seizures after the surgery. So he's currently in a medically induced coma until we can figure out the medication to control the seizures. We don't know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. And again, you know, it was just like blow after blow. And my mind not processing this. <laughs> no, I'm in shock. And I go up to the room and I just see seemingly lifeless baby you know, has gauze wrapped all over his head, has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. If you've ever been in the PICU or NICU or any kind of intensive care unit, you know, you hear all those machines beeping, the glass doors, it's cold, it's freezing. And I just stood there, you know, hold my baby's hand. And I prayed, I said, God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son, I will. You know, just don't take him away from me. And in that moment, Holy Spirit came to me and said, he's mine. Mm -hmm. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. And I said, you're right, God. He is yours. No better place for him to be than in your hands right now. And I surrendered at that moment. And I felt the peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, the Bible talks about that. And it's something I really can't explain. You know, I was at peace at that moment. And took a sigh of relief, a breath, looked over at my mom. Again, my 20 month old son bouncing off the walls. I wasn't gonna leave the hospital, right? I was gonna spend the night there. So I called my friend to pick up my mom and my son. My son happy as a clam that he was gonna sleep at grandma's house. <laughs> and I awaited my husband. 
who was coming straight from the airport to the hospital that night. A few hours passed and somebody knocks on the door. I look up and it's a man in uniform, looks like a police officer with a lady at the clipboard. And now he slides the door open. Ms. Bruno, can we speak to you? And yeah, sure. And first things out of his mouth is what happened to your son was worse than getting shot in the head by a bullet. I'm like, okay, like, will you help us help you figure out how this happened to your son? And I'm like, of course, you know, if you're asking me for help, you don't think it was me, right? You're going to ask about the nanny and what was going on that morning. That's what was going through my head. Okay. So sat down with them, told them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning. Police officer just started making, you know, little questions to me. Why didn't you call 911? Because I didn't know what was wrong with him. You know, she told me he was gassy. Why did you wait so long to bring him to the hospital? Like, again, I didn't know what was wrong with him. You know, he's seven weeks old, babies cry. <laughs> and why did you bring him to a hospital in this county when you live in the other county? Because this is the children's hospital that I know. And, you know, he's just jotting things down. And the social worker asked me, do you have any other children? And I do. Where are they, their names? So I tell her. And she said, is it okay if we go look at him? And by this time, it's around 9.30 at night. He said, he's probably sleeping by now. You know, and she's like, it's okay, we're not gonna wake him. We just wanna make sure he's okay. So again, me thinking I have nothing to hide and that I am cooperating, collaborating with law enforcement and these people are here to help me. So I call my mom, tell her that they're on their way. So the social worker leaves at this point and the police officer waits for my husband to arrive. And once my husband arrives, he takes him to one room, puts me in another room and tells me to wait for the detectives that are on their way. So in hindsight, we can kind of see what's going on. But at that moment, I had absolutely no idea, no clue what was going on. Yeah. So the detectives come, they interview me like this is not an interrogation, right? This is an interview. And they interview me till about two o'clock in the morning. So I was up from 4 a.m. <laughs> at 2 a.m. And I told them, you know, I really need to go to sleep right now. You know, I don't want to have any seizures. <laughs> And, you know, we can continue this later on today. I'll be more than happy to talk to you. So I went to bed and I wake up at about 10 o'clock. My husband is just staring at me like this blank look on his face. And my first instinct to look at the, the bed, right? The hospital bed, like he's alive. You know, what, what's going on? And he said, they took David. I'm like, who took David? Where? How? Like they showed up at your mom's house two o'clock in the morning with the three police cars and they took David. And I'm like, she lied to me. She said they were gonna see if he was, if she wasn't even gonna wake him up. She's like, well, that's not what they did. So I called my mom, I'm like, what happened? Like they showed up here two o'clock in the morning with three cars, three police cars. They came into our house, they walked through our house. She opened the refrigerator door, see if we had food. She asked where David was, I showed her, she turned on the light. She asked me to take off the clothes to see if there were any signs of abuse. And she said, there were no signs of abuse, but we're gonna take him. And my mom was like, no, you're not. And she said, well, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. <laughs> and the police officers are there, they don't say a word. Right? And my mom is like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? 
And she's like, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. So at this point, two o'clock in the morning, what my dad is calling lawyers. Blackmail, what? Right. Even. Calling lawyers, nobody would answer the phone, of course. And my son, you know, 20 months old is starting to get antsy, you know, noticing all the commotion, what is going on here. Yeah. So, you know, my poor mom, what was my mom supposed to do? So she gave my son to the social worker. Yeah. And she put him in the car. You know, my son is kicking and screaming, won't let her buckle him in. My mom goes and buckles him in and they drive off in the middle of the night. Don't tell my mom where, why, what. I mean, we're all just at a loss. Like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> and there we are the following morning. The social worker isn't answering her phone. The supervisor isn't answering the phone. We don't know where my son is. So that's where my husband was at that point, just staring at me. And I'm like, what is going on? So I start calling lawyers. He's calling social services. I called about 10 lawyers until I found one that would meet me that day and tell me what the heck is going on. Yeah. So I go there and I tell him, where's my son? And where do I go pick him up? And he looks at me and he says, sit down. Yeah, like, you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do this. You know, they can't just come in and pick up, take my son. He's like, yeah, they can. I'm like, what about our constitution? Yeah. What about innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he's like, this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. I didn't know that. And I'm like, what other law is there? (laughs) And he said they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. That's subjective. Very. Foster care is not necessarily (laughs) the best place for a child either. What? Right. So he told me, he's like, you are facing criminal charges. What happened to your son is criminal. If they decide to charge you, you're facing 15 years in jail and a $100,000 bail. If I go into that courtroom and tell the judge to give the children back to you, social services is going to pull up the criminal report, is going to pull up what the child abuse expert at the hospital stated, that it was non-accidental blunt force trauma. And they're going to tell the judge that it's going to be putting both children at risk. They are not going to give your kids back to you. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't do this. And he's like, I believe you. Doesn't matter. I'm like, okay, so what, what, what are my choices here? So let me like, pause you. What if a family doesn't have access to an attorney? Like exactly. attorneys are expensive and it's like yeah. probably difficult cases. Not everybody wants to take like, right. Most people would just be so bewildered and wouldn't know what to do next. Absolutely. And I learned more about that after the court, after the hearing, right? We had a 72 hour hearing after I met with the lawyer. It's called the emergency hearing. And he told me, so your children are two years old, under two years old and nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm like, adopted? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, without no investigation, no trial, no nothing? Like, yeah. So your saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. So the best strategy is to ask, yeah, is to ask your, the judge to give sole custody to your husband. 
That way the children don't even risk going into foster care. But if that happens, if the judge grants that, they're gonna kick you out of the house. So what option did I have, right? What were my choices? Go in there and fight for my rights and risk having my children being taken away and placed in foster care or let them be with their father and I just don't have contact with my husband or my children for that time being. So court comes three days later, we go to that courtroom and I'm thinking it's gonna be at least like Judge Judy, right? <laughs> Judge in the middle, you speak, you speak, what happened, what happened? Yeah. And I go in that courtroom, the social worker isn't there, the police isn't there, the detectives aren't there, the nanny's not there, nobody's there but me, my husband, and a bunch of lawyers. So, you know, the lawyers start speaking their legalese, and I'm just sitting there, you know, thinking, when is my turn? Like, when is the judge going to ask me what happened? Next thing I know, my name is just called, you know, any objections to the children being placed with the father? My husband, no objection. Me, no objection. Children's lawyers, no objection. Social services, we object. And the judge, why? Because we never spoke to the father, so we don't know whether he's fit or not. Court in like, who do they think they are? Right? Wait, so my attorney goes in there. I don't know what he did, but, you know, we will go back in. The judge overrules social services. Children will go with their father. Mrs. Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. Your own home. Yes. And a caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. You are court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. And court is adjourned. So I leave and that they room. they never brought up the nanny, the whole court. Never. 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 And you I never your got attorney to couldn't a word. get that in? Not at this phase of the trial. So, you know, I leave that courtroom, me and my mom, you know, crying, sobbing. I'm like, what, what just happened? Like, what is going on? Like, what country am I in? No kidding. (laughs) And I mean, I go home, you know, take up all my stuff, clean everything out. My neighbor, my next door neighbor, you know, everybody is in shock. Like everybody cannot believe this is happening. I take everything out. I gave, I put it in my neighbor's garage. Like I have no idea when I'm going to be back. And where am I supposed to go now? Right. They kicked me out of my house. They wouldn't let me live with my mom because my mom was with my son when they seized him. So she's part of the investigation. And I'm an only child. My whole family is in Brazil. My husband's family is in Brazil. And I asked my attorney, he's like, well, as long as you're in the hospital, as long as your son is in the hospital, you can sleep in the hospital. It's a monitored facility. They can't kick you out. Hmm. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So... I go sleep at the hospital and, you know, we're all praying and my mom goes to church, asks my pastor to go to the hospital and pray with me. Mm. And at this point he was in Oxford writing a book, but his wife was there and she's like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to the hospital. So she shows up at about 10 o'clock at night. You know, the visiting hours were, were over, but she had her clergy badge on, you know, we all took a laugh that she was clergy. (laughs) So she just hugged me. You know, she saw the state that my son was in. He was still Mm -hmm. unconscious at that point. And we just cried together. 
and we prayed for him. And then she looked at me and she said, I've been praying. And God told me, you're coming home with me. Mm. And I was, you know, speechless. Like, thank you. Mm. You know, like, I didn't know I knew them on a high by basis right from church, but she basically a stranger into her house. Wow. And I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point. Wow. Right? It was just me and her. And, you know, she would take me out for dinner. She would pray with me. She would cry with me. She would laugh with me. And she was just there with me, you know, this whole time. And basically this all lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Whoa. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, the caseworker gave me seven hours of monitored visitation a week with both my sons. You know, so I went from 24 seven being a stay at home mom with them to seven hours a week. Wow. And my 20 month old son at the time, you know, what happened to him? I think he took the brunt of this, mm. you know, my baby seven weeks old, he wouldn't remember, but when they seized him at two o'clock in the morning, they took him to the County shelter, to the homeless shelter, to the children's no. shelter. Yeah. And we didn't, that's where he was right. When we called, we didn't know where he was a seven week old. No, my 20 month old, the 20 month old. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what? he spent two nights in the shelter. With what supervision? And who was taking care with of the him? social worker? With the social worker. Yeah, it's a children's home. And, and how do we know if that person's fit? I Lots know. Lots of creepy yeah. people work for institutions where they have access. It to was. Them. It was. And they wouldn't release him to us, right? Neither to me nor to my husband. And they gave us 30 minutes to go see him before the, the hearing, before we went to court. And I mean, he was a zombie, you know, when I got there. And he wouldn't even come close to me. You know, he's looking at me like, like, can I trust you? Right? Like, what am I doing here? And where were you? Yeah. All the little lies his heart's believing through that yeah. situation that you didn't come, yeah. you didn't protect him. Yeah. Oh, his little heart. Oh, I'm sitting there on the floor. You know, I'm trying to interact with him. I'm playing with him. And he starts opening up, you know, sits on my lap. And it was 30 minutes. Right. So when the 30 minutes came, the social worker, ma'am, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. She's not sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm there. I'm like, oh, my God. My son, you know, I'm like, mommy, mommy will be back. Right. I don't know. I, and I can't say anything. Right. They tell you can't say anything. Right. Like, I love you. You know, mommy will be back soon. Right. And I he's clinging to my leg. He's like, no, mommy, no. My husband and I, you know, we just have to start walking away and me and my husband crying like two school children. You know, we just sat in that car crying <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God, you know, God, help us, please. God, help us. Can I pause you here? Because mm -hmm. I'm just aware of working with lots of families that when they go through something painful, that a lot of times it starts putting stress on the marriage. How did you as a married couple navigate so much pressure and stress and not accidentally starting to kind of turn against yeah. each other? Like he very easily could have been like, did you do it? You know, right. are you hurting my kids? And you could be like, you're not standing yeah. up for me and protecting me enough. You know, like right. there's so many little yeah. lies that could creep in and turn against each other and support instead of supporting each other. Right. How did you guys navigate that? I mean, absolutely. There were, you know, conflict. Yeah. Thankfully, he never questioned my character in that sense. He always 
stood out for me. And even his lawyers, you know, we had to get separate counsel so it wouldn't be conflict of interest. <laughs> and who gets to pay for that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so his attorney, he told him, it's like, you can't defend your wife. Okay, if they ask you, if you think your wife did this, you cannot say no, you know, you, you, if you defend your wife, they're going to say you're putting her needs above your children's needs and they're going to take away the kids from you. So it was, it was crazy. So he's like, you know, if they ask you, you can say, you know, anything is possible, but what are the odds or what is the likelihood that my wife did this? Right. Based on the evidence at hand, you know, but you can't go in there like gung ho. My wife did not do this. Yeah. So but, you know, amongst me and him, I he never questioned me. I knew he supported me in that sense. Mm. But, you know, my husband is very rational, very logical man, not very in tune with emotions, as most men are not. <laughs> so, you know, when I was kicked out of the house, the only time we could see each other was when we had somebody present to watch the kids and he had to leave the house and we had to go meet somewhere else. So we would have dinner together or something together and we would just fight about the case, right? Mm -hmm. He had a social worker visit the house and I had my own caseworker who was working with me. Social worker would tell him one thing. My caseworker would tell me another thing. Which confusion. Which, you know, and then we're fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he, she said, you can file form, blah, 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 and give this to the judge and not have to do this anymore. Yeah. Right. And then I would tell my lawyer and my lawyer would basically eat me up alive. I mean, he was a bully, but I needed a bully in that courtroom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's like, you do not file this. You do not do this. Do not listen to these people. You know, he would tell me, he's like, nobody here is your friend. The only friend you have here is me. And that's only because you paid me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're not actually, <laughs> but I think the most hurt between me and my husband, you know, I was pumping. I mean, I was breastfeeding, right? I was yeah. breastfeeding my son. I was nursing my son. And when this all happened, you know, emotionally, physically, psychologically, I mean, I couldn't do it. No, my body just sure. stopped. Yeah. And his main concern, every time we'd get together, were you able to pump anything today? And I'm just like, dude, like, do you know what I'm going through? Seriously. What a bending right. lot I'm going like, on. I, no, I did not pump today. <laughs> so, you know, that was just, I don't know if that was his way of coping. I don't know. You know, to this day, I'm like, I never felt supported in that sense, right? Emotionally, like I needed you to just be there for me. Yeah. And, you know, our son was in the hospital. He was being cared for. And like, I don't care if I was pumping or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, those type of things. And I forgave the nanny pretty quickly. You know, in my, in those prayer times, and I was alone, right? I did have a lot of time for reflection, right? I was alone and I would pray in those dark hours at night by myself. And I forgave her. Wow. Yet he, he wasn't able to for a long time. You know, he would just get mad. Anytime we would talk about the case, he would just get mad and ask, when is she going to come? What are we going to do this? When is the hearing for this? When is the trial for that? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, let it go. <laughs> wow. Thank God our son is alive. Right. And he's in God's hands. You know, there's nothing else we can do right now. So we did go through about a year and a half of counseling. Good. After all this happened. Good. 
And, you know, we had to go through that and build up, you know, just the foundation, the trust. Mm -hmm. He was also very paranoid from that point on, you know, about law enforcement, about, Mm. and me speaking out, you know, and writing a book about it. Mm. And he was just not on board for a while. You know, he was very very scared about what could happen, Mm. but I just had a fire up my butt. I'm like, I cannot (laughs) stay quiet. Yeah especially after what I witnessed in that child abuse class. Wow. You know, I figured I was going to be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholics, domestic violence, mm-hmm. you know, tattooed, pierced up people. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck am I going to do in a child abuse class? And when I get there, everybody's on the same boat that I was. No way. And I'm listening to the stories, you know, and the facilitators for the class they, I start telling them what my case was about. And they're like, let me guess, Dr. Wong. I'm like, yes. They're like, let me guess, non-accidental blunt force trauma. I'm like, yes. (gasps) (laughs) I'm like, you guys know this? Like this, this, this happens often. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. And I'm like, what, what? (laughs) Like, why? And I'm listening to these cases. And let me backtrack a little bit. Like when my son was in the shelter and they wouldn't give him to me or my mom or my husband, they released him to my mom, who was a public school teacher. So she was already in the system. She was fingerprinted. She was a mandated reporter. And before I even had a hearing, right, they gave him to my mom and social worker asked my mom if she would adopt my kid. And my mom is like, no, they give them back to their mom to who they belong. Mm-hmm. And the social worker, well, we don't know what the judge is going to order when the hearing comes on Monday. So in case the judge orders the removal of the children, will you adopt them? My mom's like, okay, what happens if I don't? Like they go to foster care. So my mom, you know, signed the papers. Okay, I'll adopt them. And then next thing, the social worker gives her two checks. per child. Like, okay, so you'll get $690 a month per child. They will be eligible for food stamps. They will be eligible for Medicaid. They will be eligible for WIC, you know, all these social welfare benefits or services. And my mom's like, I don't want your money. And the social worker, well, this is how we help the family. And my mom is like, can I save it for the lawyers? social workers I'll pretend I didn't hear that so now I'm at the child abuse class right and everybody I mean there was probably about 20 to 30 parents in there and all walks of life all races all ages I mean there were lawyers there were business owners there were waiters there was me you know there was everything in there and They were getting adopted, right? Or they were placed in foster care. And then the facilitators, you know, start talking about it. They're like, yeah, you know, everybody gets a slice of the pie. And it all comes from a law that was signed by Bill Clinton in 1997 called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which basically gives the state's federal funding for every child that is placed in foster care. So the social workers have their motivation right, to keep getting the funding, you know, if they don't have enough children within the system, the funding gets cut. No. So then there will be layoffs, there will be, you know, they have to justify their existence, basically. What? Yeah. 
And that federal funding, not only for social services, it goes to the facilitators, it goes to the psychologists, it goes to the expert witnesses, you know, everybody, the public defenders, everybody gets a little slice of the funding. So I'm like, wow, like that, like, that's terrible, right? I'm like, this is human trafficking, basically. Yeah. <laughs> These I mean, kids have bounties on their head. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, and one day when I was living with my pastor still, my mom called me one day and she said, Rachel, you know, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what's going on. One word keeps coming to my mind and it's repent. And I'm like, repent. Okay. You know, at that moment, I felt like Job with his friends. <laughs> like, are you telling me that I did something to deserve I did it? something. <laughs> But, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, I took it in and that night I prayed about it and I'm like, okay, God, who sinned, right? That my son was born blind again. That's another parable in the Bible mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit again to me, he's like, nothing, you know, my child, nothing, my daughter, you know, what you're witnessing right now is the evil, evil world that we live in. And what is taking place right now is the destruction of the family. Yeah. Exactly. which is something that the devil has been doing ever since I created it. Wow. Right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's true. Right. Cain and Abel, like right from the get go, right. Adam and Eve, wife against husband, brother against brother. Mm -hmm. And like you, I will get you past this, right. Your family will be used to help other families. The pain you're going through right now is not in vain. Right. And I, at that moment, like my perspective completely shifted from like, oh my gosh, like, how are these other families dealing with this? Right. Mm -hmm. What if you don't know God? What yeah. if you don't have Hope. your family behind you? Yeah. What if you don't have the money? What if you don't have the education? What if, like, what if, right? All these what ifs. Things. And my shift, you know, began from focusing on myself and my family to now praying for all those families in that child abuse class with me. Yeah. Right. And we became instant friends. Mm. You know, it's a dystopian support group <laughs> that we had in there. <laughs> we disenfranchised together. <laughs> yes. And I mean, I'm still friends with someone to this day, with two, two women to this day, that we had the same caseworker. We had the same doctor. We had the same lawyer, we had the same judge, <laughs> and my friend got her parental rights terminated in October of 2018. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this happened in 2015, July of 2015. And, you know, her children were placed for adoption, her parental rights were terminated. And I really struggled, you know, like, why me? Like, why, not why did this happen to me, but why was my family spared? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm no better than any of these parents that I met in there. Yeah. Right. And that's part of the fire that was in me is that, you know, what I witnessed, you know, what God gave me, like, I have to speak out on behalf of these families. Yes. And a right? broken system. To. It's so cool. Yeah. And like, it's my calling now, you know, I can't just turn a blind eye to what happened. Oh. So it went on. So on that 40th day, we had a hearing, right? It was 40 days and 40 nights on that 40th day. We had a hearing and my attorney said, don't even bother coming to court today. The criminal case is still open. 
The status of the investigation hasn't changed. So don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I'm like, okay, you know, he'd been right all along so far. <laughs> but I tell my husband, and my husband says, I don't care what he says, we're going. I'm like, okay. So we go to court. We wait there about an hour and a half later. He calls me. He's like, where are you? I come at the courthouse. He's like, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something. And hangs up on me. And I'm like, okay. Again, start texting everybody. I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Everybody start praying. And at this point, you know, I said I'm from Brazil. My whole family was in Brazil. Mm-hmm. We had a church in Brazil who fasted, who was fasting oh. for those 40 days, right? The day that it started wow. and that day at that hearing. And the pastor had the whole church stand up and like point their hands towards the north, right towards America and pray. <laughs> So we were there, you know, texting everybody. My lawyer comes, I go give him a hug. And he's like, don't hug me yet. I can't make you any promises. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Sit outside in that hallway. He goes in, comes back out, sign this. I sign it, goes back, initial this. You know, he's coming back and forth, back and forth for like three hours. And I don't even know what I'm signing. I don't know what I'm initialing. I'm just trusting God and my attorney at this point. Finally comes back, like 700 papers, hands me the report. He's like, if you're willing to sign this the way it's written, right? All the corrections that we made, all the initials that you did, if you're willing to accept it the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the timeline of events, the social workers' narratives, the police investigation, the medical records, then they will let you go home today. So at this point, if they had told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. (laughs) (laughs) So I signed it and my attorney told me, like, I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. Like, you definitely have a higher power working for you. Hmm. I guess I do. (laughs) Like, thank you, God. So I went home that day. And, you know, we were still, I was still court ordered to take all those services, which I continue to do. We were placed on what they call family maintenance plan, where the social worker comes to our house every month. And at the end of a six month period, it was her recommendation that our case be closed. So the case was closed (laughs) and the criminal case was closed nearly one year later. Oh my gosh. When my attorney called the DA and told her, you know, you know, you don't have a case against my client. You do not want to go up against my client. It's like, I will humiliate you. <laughs> so she, she closed the case and it was done, right? I'm like, thank God it was done. You know, thank God my son, my seven-week-old son survived, not only survived, he thrived. Mm. And he was on anti-epileptic drugs for about one year. He was on physical therapy for about a year. So was it epilepsy and not head trauma it was head trauma but it caused epilepsy from that point on right he had seizures from that point on oh but it was only for one year you know we weaned him off and we did eeg like a year later and there were no signs of seizure activity and he actually got a cranial reconstruction when he was two years old because i could put my thumb right here and feel his brain pulsing (laughs) whoa (laughs) yeah and the neurologist is like, you know, it will eventually close. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sending him to school with a hole in his head, especially being a boy. Yeah. <laughs> so he had the reconstruction. You know, that was another thing when we saw the CT scan, 
nearly two years later after the trauma. There's like a lemon sized ball here where the trauma occurred that is just encapsulated in fluid. So like that part of his brain is missing. There's no brain there. <laughs> Whoa. So, you know, when they had to suction the blood out, they probably suctioned part of the brain out mm. that was atrophied, you know, through the, the contact with the brain. Yeah. And the neurologist, the neurosurgeon, he's like, okay, so here's the image. If I were only looking at this image, I would be really concerned right now for your son. But seeing him here in person, I have no concerns whatsoever. Yay! No. <laughs> like awesome. he reached all his milestones. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a miracle baby, a true miracle, you know, and I credit God to God be the glory yeah. for what happened. Yeah. And even with David, when they took him to the shelter, they gave him 13 vaccinations without our consent. All at the same time, order, right? All at the same time oh, because he wasn't up to date. You know, we were not anti-vaxxers. We just modified the schedule. Right. Why he wasn't up to date. Yeah. According to the government standards, he wasn't up to date. So they gave him the 13 vaccines at once. They forced him through That's a child abuse. survey. Exactly. The, the skeletal survey. You know, he's not even two years old with a bunch of strangers had just been ripped away from his grandma's house. Mm -hmm. And they take him to the hospital to do the skeletal survey, which is a pictures of all the bones in your body. And you have to sit still. Right now, can you imagine a 20 month old sitting still without his mom, without his dad? Yeah, they had to tie him down. And he remembers. So they did that to him. They forced him through an anal wink test. No. What is which that? is for sexual abuse when there were no allegations of sexual abuse you know but at this point they were just digging for anything that they could use to justify what they did to cover their own behinds yes absolutely and, which is you know, sexual when... abuse to do that to a child the probe know, itself it's yes. i've had clients that their soul takes it just as traumatic doing a medical yeah. exam as a little one that doesn't understand why these adults yeah. are putting things up their private parts it right. doesn't matter the intent of the adult it's the experience of the child especially without a parent there yeah. to protect them and help them understand and feel safe yeah. oh my gosh absolutely and I mean he rejected me for probably about a year you know even yeah. after I was allowed to go home Feeling abandoned. and I'm trying you know to rebuild and I mean leaving every time I would go to my mom's house and we had to leave to go to our house he would just scream, like throw a fit. Yeah. You know, that would just come back to him. You know, this is where they took me away. Yeah. And I mean, it was horrible, you know, trying to get him into that car seat and coming home. And he would yell at me, no, I don't want you, mommy. I want to be with, with my grandma. Mm. Right. And, you know, at some point I'm like, you know, how, how close that came to happening. <laughs> right. But again, you know, he's, two years old, like not even three years old at this point. Yeah. And I'm building a wall against my son. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the words hurt. Yeah. You know? And again, I had to go into the bathroom one day, sit on the toilet and just cry. Yeah. And I'm like, God, you know, I can't do this. You know, the words hurt. I know he's the victim. I'm a victim too, you know, but the spirit in me, yes, but you're the adult. 
right? You're the adult in the situation. I'm like, is it too early to talk to him about this? And I felt that nudge, like, no, you know, go, go talk to him. So I sat down with him one day, one day when we were in the middle of a fight, the struggle, you know, and he's pushing me away. And I just sat down with him and I'm like, do you remember when your auntie had to come take care of you, which were my cousins who came from Brazil mm -hmm. to take care of him when I was removed from the house. Wow. And the first words out of his mouth were, why did you leave? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so you remember, you know. I got the pictures from my cell phone and I'm like, look, you know, this is what happened to your brother. I showed him in the hospital and he's looking at the pictures. I'm like, they thought that mommy did this. And that if mommy had done this to your brother, that I was going to do the same thing to you. And then he like fringed his eyebrows. He's like, you never heard us, mommy. Hmm. I'm like, I know, I know. But they thought that mommy was going to do this. And, you know, they thought they were doing their job. I'm like, how do I explain this to a three-year-old without, <laughs> you know, creating resentment, rebellion, anger. Yeah. <laughs> against authority. Yeah. So I'm like, they thought they were doing their job, David, but they did. They made a bad choice. They made a really bad choice. Right. But this is not your fault. None of this was your fault. Yeah. It wasn't mommy's choice. It wasn't daddy's choice. You know, it wasn't grandma's choice. It was nobody's choice to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something we had to do to protect you and your brother. Yeah. But we love you. You know, we never abandon you. And we're not going to let them get away with it. And he looked at me. He's like, you going to hit them, mommy? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we're going to hit them with a stack of papers. <laughs> we're going to hit them. And from that point on, it was a complete His narrative shifted. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to underscore that point. I think it's so key. I think a lot of times we think just because kids are little that they don't understand what's going on. Even if they don't have conscious memory, they have implicit memory. And so that felt experience of being abandoned and then the narrative in their emotions that they start to believe around that. So many parents will start to try to be like overcompensate for a wound or for like, let's say one parent's abusive or neglectful or in a, a divorce situation. So they'll overcompensate and Instead of just sitting down like Rachel did and just being like, hey, let's talk about the narrative of that and not being afraid of any of the negative that might come at the parent, um, but being able to sit them through it and say, hey, can I give you a new interpretation of those events? obviously using kid language, um, because now you're extracting kind of like gangrene, like you're getting the lie out that's causing their heart to harden and then a root of rebellion to form. The reason they're not trusting you is because there's pain there. And when there's pain then I want to self-protect, which serves as like self-idolatry from a very young age. And so in that place, then now this bitterness and resentment and issues with authority. And so now they're going to have shame because they're always in trouble and they're pointed out as the bad kid. Um, and they're going to have a lot more rejection later in life because that root has never been resolved. And so I think it was beautiful that you just walked us through, Hey, it's not that hard. Even if they're, you know, two years old, three years old, if they're even younger, you can do it with blocks or with drawing. Um, it may not be that they can use language, but you can help them point at the picture or the doll or whatever they're doing and then help them understand, Hey, that's not what you think it was. May I share this? 
But what's important is not just talking as the adult over the child, but I love how she sat with him and let him tell his story, um, get that out versus just talking over them. It's like overlaying on top versus helping him get it out. And then now inviting a new interpretation. So I think that was so important what you just shared. Yes. I mean, it was, you know, it was spirit led, mm-hmm. you know, it just followed what yeah. God told me to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I told them we were going to fight, I had already contacted a civil rights attorney Good. who took our case. And, you know, when the complaint came, the petition, you know, it was all done by mail. I showed him the paper uh-huh. and I'm like, David, here's the pile of papers. We're going to hit them. <laughs> Come on, go circle. Yes. And I mean, we prayed over the complaint with him, Yeah, you know, cause I always told him, I'm like, God is the final judge. Yeah. Right. He would ask, you know, what happened to the nanny? Why isn't she, is she in jail? Are the bad guys going to get her? And I'm like, I don't know, David, I don't know, you know, but we have to forgive her. We have to forgive the police officers. We have to forgive the detectives. We have to forgive the doctors. We have to forgive all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And give it to God. God yeah. is going to judge them. So, you know, I tried to instill that in him from the beginning Yeah. and we prayed over that petition. We put it in the mail, he placed it in the mailbox yeah. and every night before bed, you know, during that time we would pray for the case. We would tell him along the way, you know, where we were in the case mm-hmm. and, you know, the deposition started and I mean, it was intense. It was painful to relive, yeah. you know, and deposing the social worker seeing their faces and the discovery that we got, you know, we got their text messages back and forth (laughs) before they even got to the hospital. You know, the social worker that ended up interviewing me, I got the text messages between her and her supervisor. And she texts her supervisor, I'm on my way to a hospital. There's an infant with a cranial fracture. Baby was with the nanny per mom which is what I told the doctors. So the doctors are mandated reporters, right? So this, the social worker, the supervisor replies back, OMG, do you think it was the nanny? And then the social worker replies back, no, think mom. Before ever interviewing me. So, I mean, they had already made up their minds, you know, what this was. And I mean, I got a private investigator when the whole thing was going on to see if we could find anything about the nanny. And there were no red flags specifically, except that she was married to a cop, a police officer. Whoa, creepy. And my private investigator, he said, they're not, they're not going to go after her. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> it makes me so angry how people predators really try to get into families, good graces, whether it's in the schools or youth groups or community centers or churches, like, and then it gives the whole uh, organization a bad name because my passion is to stand up for those in the helping professions, right? Right. Like I Mm -hmm. love the police. I love social workers. I love all these people doing such great work, but man, there is so many evil people that are drawn to those fields because they know that they 
can act, have access to kids. They can have their power yeah. trips and exploit things. And just yeah. a few bad people can really put such a black eye for a whole group of people that are trying to do the right thing. So yeah. anybody listening, I just want you to know, this is not a beat up right. the system or the people. We know that there's good people and we recognize and honor you. Uh, but we also know that we have to clean house, that this is not appropriate. Yeah. And I've even worked with families in my county, in Tarrant County, uh, and the family court system has egregiously done misjustice of leaving a child being molested with the father and the social worker knows it. The therapist knows it. everybody knows he's being molested in the father's home and they gave custody to dad. Yeah. Like <laughs> I don't have words as a therapist. I'm like, I, I just like, that's it's just crazy. I and just, I think, you know, that's like the financial incentive, right? The whole structure has to change. Like there shouldn't be a financial incentive right. to remove children. Like, why aren't we incentivizing for reunification? Right. Or like the money that they offered my mom, right? $690 a month per child. Yeah. Say I was a drug addict. Say I yeah. was an alcoholic. Why not give that money to me? Or, you know, put it in rehab or some kind of mm -hmm. services mm -hmm. so that the biological parents can get the services or the resources they need. Yeah. Right. As opposed to taking the children away and placing them with strangers. Yeah. Who you know, made it's not fair to me. anybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was crazy. The, the friend who had her parental rights terminated, you know, her oldest daughter, her biological father was never part of her family. I mean, never was part of her life, right? The biological father left when she was a baby and now she's 11 years old and there's this family court thing going on where they want to take away all the children and they place her with her father. And she tells the judge, she's 11 years old. She's like, I don't know him. Like, I, I've never been with him. I don't want to be with him. Yeah. And the judge says, well, we want to encourage you to have a relationship with your father. And she's like, well, you've encouraged me and I don't want to. <laughs> but they still placed her with her father out of state, right? Away from her mom, away from her siblings. And her father, everything that's normal. Everything that's Yeah. Yeah. And then when she gets there, the father goes to court and gives guardianship to his parents. He's like, I don't want her. <laughs> so the grandparents had guardianship of her for what, for three years while this case was going on. And I think, yeah, the case was closed. She was still required to live there, but at 18, she is 21 now. She moved back to her home state went to court, changed her name back to her original name and is with her mom. Yeah. Man. And, you know, this friend that I was walking through throughout all this, you know, she, of course, I don't know how, how she coped with losing her parental rights and all her children during this, what you know, and I just kept praying for her and I kept saying, you know, Rana, they know the truth, right? Your children know the truth and they will come back to you. You know, what, even if it takes them being 18 years old, that they can come back to you, they will come back to you. Mm. So her oldest daughter did, and her son will be 18 next year. And he's already told her, he's like, when I turn 18, I will go back to that courtroom. I will change my name. I will come back home. And there's still a 15 year old and a eight year old and a five year old that are with the adoptive families. So I just pray daily for, for them and for all those families. I mean, it's, it's heart-wrenching when you hear the stories 
And I think people don't know, right? The American public doesn't know. No. I didn't know. I'm like, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. That there is no due process in family court. Yeah. You family are guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. And people don't get that, right? They, I always thought, you know, if you got your children taken away, you must have done something really that bad. That was on you. Yeah, yeah. I did too. Until yeah. I started working with families in my county and I'm like, this is like the most travesty of justice I've ever seen. I can't even like fathom right. judges knowing a child's yeah. being molested or abused and then still giving custody to that parent. I'm like, I, yeah. I mean, that's evil. That's, it is. It's unconscionable. I can't even fathom it. Um, and so to hear your story is just, it reiterates that there has to be reform, yes. that people have been put in positions of power with no accountability, and that's never yeah. safe. Nope. Um, Not safe. And, you know, like I said, I don't blame the foster parents. You know, I don't blame the social yeah. workers, you know, and I just imagine like, what would a potential foster family hear about my case? Yeah. Right. A social worker would tell them, you know, this seven week old baby yeah. got a cranial That's fracture evil. while in right. the care of his mom. Right. Will you please help this baby and his little brother? Yeah. And any family would say, of course, get that witch away from these kids. Right. Right. right? You're only told. So, parents. you know, I just tell people out there, you know, take what they say with a grain of salt, <laughs> you know, and really, I don't know if you're a Christian and you're in the church. I know a lot of people in church foster. Mm-hmm you know, pray about it, really pray about it mm-hmm. and try to support the biological family as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible tells us to take care of the widow and the orphans. You know, these kids are not orphans. A lot of these kids have a lot of family that are willing to take care of them. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the money. You know, they don't have the lawyers and they, the system is not on their side. Yeah. It's really not on their side. And before you ever decide to call Child Protective Services, please, <laughs> you know, you don't know what Pandora's box you're opening for this family. Yeah. You know, if you see a child that looks disheveled, you know, go talk to their mom and see mm-hmm. what's going on. You know, if you're in a community, if you're in a church, if you have single mothers, take them a home-cooked meal once in a while, offer to babysit them once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we can help families. You know, it's not by calling social services. It's not by getting the authorities involved because once you do, you have lost all control of the situation. Mm-hmm. And chances are that child is never going to see their family again. Wow. It's a frightening concept. Yeah. So <laughs> in recap, um, so when you're encouraging somebody, let's say maybe they're going through something similar or not similar, but they're just feeling very powerless and helpless. I think there were certain points that made me tear up of just like the importance of having community. And for me and you, I think we found that maybe in like church community that of course church has issues and there's people there, but for the most (laughs) part, it has been a lifeline. I've moved a ton of times and just having that support and people to walk with you through valleys. Um, So what would you say are some of those lifelines that maybe people could be reaching out to if they're going through a really painful trial? Yeah. Well, you know, in church, basically it's because we're like-minded, mm. right? So, you know, find a community around you that is like-minded, be it church, be it, you know, a mom's group, be it something in school that are like-minded and, you know, people who know your character. Like I said, they never, I had people around me never questioned my character. Mm-hmm. Like never once didn't somebody think, did you do this? Did you really do this? I mean, I was amazed. I was humbled, you know. Yeah 
I like, how could I be happy in this situation? But I was <laughs> when I had to get character letters yeah. for the, the court. And I got like 23 character letters in, in one weekend. Some people I hadn't spoken to in 20 years. And they're like, of course, you know, we'll write you a letter. This is crazy. So that importance of relationships, right? Yes. Building relationships with like-minded people. That's right. And they will always, you know, they'll be there to support you when you need it, when you're going through tough times. Vulnerability, you know, it's hard to be vulnerable when you're going through tough times. Yeah. But most people, you know, when they see that you're in need, that you're vulnerable, most people mm -hmm. will reach out yeah. and help you. Even if you just need a hug, even if you just need someone to cry to, if you need somebody to vent to, yeah. you know, it's really important to get all that stuff out and not hold yeah. it in because we know that affects us physically mm -hmm. and emotionally. Yeah. 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 And I think it was really sweet about the pastor's wife bringing you in and just not trying to be strong and having it all together. So many people try to keep a strong, brave face yeah. and it's like, let people be there for you. I mean, yeah. that would be such a sad thing to just not receive some of the gifts that are around us. And it may not come in the package that you want at that point, you wanted to go home and it would be yeah. easy to just be resentful and angry instead of going, okay, Lord, this is your gift right now in this season, this is a blessing. Um, and so I hope that maybe you listening would receive, but also maybe some of the people listening could also be the person that maybe takes somebody in, um, with wisdom obviously. Um, but if you feel led to, I think that's really sweet to step up and be community and be someone who writes a character letter that you can help change somebody's life just by stepping into those gaps. It doesn't have to be change the whole system. You can just right. lean into the spaces that you can do and change somebody's world. Rachel, yeah. there's a million more questions I could ask and pick your brain. And we're probably going to have you back because yeah. <laughs> we just want to peel back, but I think it was good. We needed to the story in the context. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it in different cases, but I think it's so helpful because with therapy, I can't, you know, have my clients yeah. as my guests, but um, <laughs> I can have you share your story yeah. and help bring light. And if somebody is dealing with something uh, with family court, is there a resource? Is there something they can do? I know they're going to get your book fractured hope, but is there right. anything else they can do to, or like civil lawyers or whatever to reach out to? Yeah, I mean, family court is a really specialized, you know, industry, and mm -hmm. most lawyers don't want to deal with it because they know how lawless it is. Yeah. And that there really isn't a guarantee. Like you could do everything every step of the way, and they can do whatever they can throw a wrench in your case at any minute. Wow. You know, so I don't say that to discourage people, but, you know, be aware mm -hmm. of who you are dealing with, right? Know your enemy. And the public defenders. You know, like, again, just like the social workers, I'm sure there are plenty of them who are good, who are well-meaning and who do want to fight for you, but they do work for the same system, mm -hmm. right? And they are like colleagues, basically, the judges, the mm -hmm. caseworkers and the public defenders, wow. you know, and they don't want to make each other upset. They don't want to be on each other's mm -hmm. bad side. So if you can, you know, I really do recommend that you get a private attorney. Mm -hmm. If you have to sell your car, if you have to beg your family, you know, get that money mm. somewhere so that you can get a private attorney. Yeah. And secondly, you know, if social services ever shows up at your door, ask them for a warrant. You know, that's something that I didn't realize <laughs> when they came knocking at my mom's door. You know, they didn't have a warrant. So if they don't have a warrant, no warrant, no entry. 
right? You can politely tell them, you know, please go away. <laughs> or, I didn't know you know, that. what is this case about? And do you have a warrant? Wow. If they don't have a warrant, then you don't have to let them go, come into your house. They do not have to talk to your children. Now, again, doesn't mean they're not going to go get a warrant. Yeah. No, they may go get one, but it at least give you time mm -hmm. to set up something, you know, put your children with their grandparents or wherever so that they're not going to get taken away mm -hmm. and swallow your pride. You know, during this whole process, I knew I was innocent. I knew I didn't do this. I saw the injustice, right? They didn't even interview the nanny. They didn't do anything regarding the nanny, right? All this was on me, but I just had to do whatever the heck they tell me to do because they literally have your children's hands. I mean, there's children's lives in their hands, right? Okay. They can do anything they want. So don't lay down and just- So do not just fight. don't fight. Now is not the time to fight, <laughs> right? And yeah. And that was it. Oh, yeah. And what is it? The Fifth Amendment exists for a reason, <laughs> right? Which is you have the right to remain silent. If I had to do it all over again, I probably would not have spoken to the social worker or to the police officers at that hospital wow. until I had spoken with my attorney. Wow. Okay. Good right. Job. And they don't tell you. I mean, they didn't tell me this was a child abuse investigation. I had no idea what was going on. Gosh. So you keep your mouth shut. That is a gift, right? You do not have to talk. <laughs> wow. And yeah, I mean, those were probably the, the lessons that I learned throughout all this. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure so many more. Yeah. Um, but we <laughs> want to thank you all for joining us and please connect with Rachel Bruno. She has a website and a book and she's available to speak and share and encourage people and also help um, in this legal fight, whatever it's going to look like to help bring reformation to a corrupt system that's affecting a lot of families. We love you advocates, world changers, and we'll see you for the next episode. Bye guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for watching this episode of Unlock You. It is our dream to invest in you. And one of the ways you can do that is by getting more of the bonus material, the content, and to know about future events, head to the website, drshannoncrawford.com. Subscribe to the newsletter and you'll be the first to know what we're rolling out. And we want you to truly get unlocked so that you can thrive, not only for yourself, but also for the greater calling on your life. Let's link arms and do it together. See you in the next episode.